Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to the 22nd installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 9 of the Michigan Constitution. Article 1, Section 9 reads as follows. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, unless for the punishment of a crime, shall ever be tolerated in this state. As you can imagine, This provision of the Michigan Constitution is included to expressly prohibit slavery or anything that could remotely smack of involuntary servitude. I'm pleased to say there's almost zero case law covering this constitutional provision. And the few cases I did find to review were brought by people who alleged involuntary servitude but were rightly rejected by the courts. Here's why I say rightly rejected. The people bringing forth claims of involuntary servitude really disgraced what the purpose and intent of Article 9 stands for. It's in the Michigan Constitution to truly drive home the fact slavery will never again be tolerated. Not only is it prohibited via the United States Constitution, making it prohibited across the country, the state of Michigan echoes it within our state constitution. While it is repetitive and and one might argue unnecessary, again, because it's already prohibited by the federal United States Constitution, we as a state wanted to truly drive home the point. Therefore, we've included this provision within our own constitution saying we also will prohibit slavery and involuntary servitude here in the state of Michigan. So when people, as we're about to talk about, allege involuntary servitude for things which are far from slavery or involuntary servitude, I cringe. What am I talking about? Well, let's discuss the following five cases. But first, your spoonful of legalese. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast We'll review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8 Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal needs. 
In our first case, titled City of Detroit versus Division 26 of Amalgamated Association of Street, Electric, Railway, and Motor Coach Employees of America, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1952, we get our first documented allegation of involuntary servitude when employees of the Street, Electric, Railway, and Motor Coach Union went on strike. Here's the fact pattern for this case. The employees demanded a pay increase after their contract with the city had expired. After an extended period of negotiation time, on April 17, 1951, the union took a vote of its membership on two questions. Number one, were the members in favor of a strike? Number two, were those same members in favor of arbitration? The vote resulted overwhelmingly in favor of the first question, specifically, to strike. Therefore, four days later, the employees of the Street Electric Railway and Motor Coach went on strike and it lasted for two months. It is noted in the court opinion that the strike resulted in complete cessation of Detroit Public Transportation Service, particularly the Street Railway Department. On June 18, 1951, a trial court judge ordered the employees back to work, largely in part to the problems it caused to the innocent residents of Detroit trying to get to and from work but could not afford a car for their own personal transportation. The definition of a strike is as follows. As used in this act, the word strike shall mean the concerted failure to report for duty, the willful absence from one's position, the stoppage of work, or the abstinence in whole or in part from the full, faithful, and proper performance of the duties of employment for the purpose of inducing, influencing, or coercing a change in the conditions or compensation or the rights, privileges, or obligations of employment. At issue is the Public Employee Act, which, as the title implies, pertains to public employees of local and state government. Because the strikers working for Detroit's street railway system are public employees, the act applies to them. The act is designed as a matter of public policy to prevent strikes by public employees. The act contains a provision which makes clear an employee on strike must abandon and terminate his employment while also limiting the public employer's ability to rehire a striking employee. The act also provides for substitution mediation in place of ordinary strike procedure, and that either party may obtain mediation. The value to mediation over striking is that it gives both sides an opportunity to come to a resolution without any major inconvenience to the innocent citizens of Detroit. Sidebar. Although I'm fairly certain we've talked about this before, let me remind you what arbitration is. It is something different from mediation, and I want you to understand the difference. With mediation, you have a neutral third party who attempts to bring the two warring sides together to a mutually agreed upon outcome. If they do come to a mutually agreed upon outcome, it gets drafted up. Both sides will sign it, agreeing to the provisions and the requirements within that document. 
But if the two sides don't come to a mutually agreed upon decision, all right, well, they're free then to continue pursuing their respective lawsuit against one another. So remember, mediation means mutual. I, I, I like the, the triple alliteration. Mediation means mutual. You either do or do not agree to a mutually agreed upon outcome, thus potentially bringing the lawsuit to a close. On the other hand, arbitration is like mediation, but the arbiter gets to ultimately decide the outcome if the parties can't come together. So much like mediation, the arbiter will try to bring the two warring parties together to a mutually agreed upon decision. If the two parties agree on an outcome together, well, great, the case is resolved. However, if the two sides can't come to a mutually agreed upon resolution, the arbiter gets to make the decision for these two parties, or on behalf of these two parties. One side may win while the other side loses, or the arbiter may try to split the baby, so to speak, and give a little to one side you know, of the party and, and give a little bit to the other party. Regardless, it's the arbiter who gets to decide the outcome of this disagreement. In a way, an arbiter is a lot like a judge, except that most judges don't have the kind of time necessary to flesh out a lawsuit like an arbiter does. So, once the arbiter makes his decision, it goes to a judge who can either accept the arbiter's decision, or the judge can throw it out and force the parties to a trial. As you can imagine, though, it's a rarity that a judge will not accept the arbiter's decision since the judge understands the time and effort an arbiter puts into understanding and resolving a case. Here in, in our case at hand, the union employees were on strike and they made what I believe to be a distasteful argument that not being allowed to strike was an infringement of their federal and state constitutional rights. They believed they were being treated differently from non-public employees who are allowed to strike and that it was, well, wait for it, equivalent to involuntary servitude. But the Michigan Supreme Court said that neither common law nor Article 1, Section 9 of the Michigan Constitution gives anyone an absolute right to strike. They held that a strike which runs afoul of statutory law or public policy is not entitled to legal protection and may be subject to legal restrictions. They go on to note, to the extent that terms and conditions of public employment are governed by statute or charter, those terms and conditions are not subject to modification by contract, meaning you cannot contract away a right that is provided to you by law. You can't contract that away. You can't give it up if it's provided to you by law. More so, the Supremes noted, any concerted labor activity instigated for the purpose of affecting terms and condition is not sanctioned by law. In conclusion, the Michigan Supreme Court held that any employment in public service can and does include a necessary surrender of certain civil rights to a certain extent. And this limitation of civil rights is because of the dominant public interest in the unimpeded and uninterrupted performance of functions of government. Therefore, being told you as a public employee can't strike does not equate to slavery or involuntary servitude. It's the legislature's goal to prevent the interruption of governmental services to the citizens 
by preventing public employees from striking. The idea here is that if we keep public employees doing their jobs for the citizens, the citizens won't lose whatever the public services are that, that are being provided. And that was the case here. The people of Detroit lost their public transportation for two months because of the strike. Okay. Our next case of school district for the city of Holland plus Ottawa and Elegant counties versus Holland Education Association and is a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1968. And this encompasses a similar, I believe, distasteful allegation. Let's see if you as the listener can pick up on any themes here. The school districts for the city of Holland, the county of Ottawa, along with the county of Allegan, brought forth a lawsuit in the Ottawa County Circuit Court against this union, Holland Education Association, requesting an injunction concerning what the school district claimed to effectively be a strike by the teachers' union members when they engaged in a concerted failure to report for duty. The teachers engaged in a willful absence from the full, faithful, and proper performance of their duties of employment for the purposes of inducing or influencing or coercing a change in the conditions or compensation regarding their obligation of employment. Now, these teachers didn't think that they should be classified as public employees, and the statute reads... No person holding a position by appointment or employment in the government of the state of Michigan, or in the government of any one or more of the political subdivisions thereof, or in the public school service, or in any public or special district, or in the service of any authority, commission, or board, or in any other branch of the public service, hereinafter called a public employee, shall strike. After a hearing a judge issued a temporary restraining order directed at the defendants, the pertinent portions thereof being as follows. It is ordered that, pending a final hearing on the merits of said complaint, and until the further order of this court, said defendants, Holland Education Association, as well as any member, agent, and or representative of any named dependent, and all persons acting in concert with them or any of them, are hereby restrained and enjoined. 1. From striking, under any guise whatsoever, including any concerted failure to report for duty, or willfully absenting themselves from their positions, stopping work, or abstaining in whole or in part from the full, faithful, and proper performance of their duties of employment, for the purpose of inducing, influencing, or coercing a change in the conditions, or compensation, or the rights, privileges, or obligations of employment. 2 from encouraging, inducing, or persuading teachers to strike under any guise whatsoever, including the concerted withholding of services, and including any concerted failure to report for duty, or willfully absenting themselves from their positions, from stopping work, or abstaining in whole or in part from the full, faithful, and proper performance of their duties of employment, for the purpose of inducing, influencing, or coercing a change in the conditions, or compensation, or the rights, privileges, or obligations of employment. The teachers argued that if they were required to go to work without the agreed-upon concessions from the school district, and if they were required to go to work instead of being out on the picket line, 
This amounted to slavery and involuntary servitude. For good reason, the Michigan Supreme Court rejected this abhorrent allegation. First of all, nobody is making the teachers do anything. The teachers may not have an agreed-upon contract between the school district and the union, but the teachers will be paid for their services. They will receive a paycheck, and depending on the final contract, uh, likely back pay for the difference between what they were paid and what the new contract entitles them to receive will probably be worked out. Second, it was already decided from our previous case regarding the Detroit railway workers that the prohibition of picketing does not equate to slavery and involuntary servitude. The court said in this case, they get it that people in the private sector do enjoy the luxury of striking, which public employees do not. But the justices of the Michigan Supreme Court said, quote, the wisdom and philosophy of the act in question is not ours to make, unquote. Meaning, they're not going to say whether this prohibition of public employees from being able to strike is a good law or bad law. That's up to the legislature to decide as an elected body to represent the best interests of the people of Michigan. But what the Supremes do say is that the legislature does have the constitutional right to prohibit a public employee from striking. And this prohibition has not only been on the books at least at 20, for 20 years at the time this case was decided, but they also said that this law was in line with a great majority of other states also whom have been found to be in constitutional compliance with the prohibition on public employee striking. So said another way, Michigan's not going it alone here. Michigan's not the only state which prohibits its public employees from being allowed to strike. Lots of other uh, states in, in the United States allow for this. And when those states had been challenged on whether it was constitutional or not, those states won the argument saying, yes, you do have a constitutional right to prevent a public employee from striking. Again, the idea here is you want the kids in the classrooms being taught while the teachers union and the school districts hammer out, you know, the specifics and the details of an actual contract. But get the teachers in the classroom, get the students in the classroom, and we can deal with the pay and the contract and all of that outside of the actual day-to-day -day teachings. For that reason, it was deemed not to be considered involuntary servitude to prevent these teachers from striking. All right, our third case where involuntary servitude comes up was in the case of Hutchinson versus Schuster, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1972, whereby an attorney was court-ordered to represent an indigent criminal defendant in a criminal prosecution. Here's what happened. An attorney was sitting in the gallery of a courtroom awaiting his client's case to be called. Before that could happen, a different criminal defendant had his case called and was before the judge with no attorney. Based on the circumstances related to that case, the judge determined it would be beneficial for this unrepresented criminal defendant to have a court-appointed attorney assist the defendant in his criminal case. Therefore, seeing this criminal defense attorney sitting in the gallery of the courtroom, the judge appoints the attorney to represent the criminal defendant in his case. The lawyer, being the piece of work that he was, told the judge he refused to accept the appointment, 
alleging that for the judge to require this attorney to accept such a case amounts to an unconstitutional invasion of a lawyer's right to due process and equal protection and, wait for it, is involuntary servitude. Yes, it was this attorney's philosophy that having to represent a criminal defendant too poor to afford an attorney was similar to slavery and involuntary servitude. As you would imagine, the Michigan Court of Appeals smacked this lawyer back into place. They said that the state statute allows for a judge to appoint an attorney for the defense of an indigent criminal defendant. They went on to say, not only is there a law which allows a judge to do this, but more so, the power of the court to require an attorney to accept such an appointment has been vested in the courts from the very dawn of our Anglo-American judicial tradition. The Court of Appeals went on to say it has been almost universally held, even in the absence of any compensation, requiring a practicing attorney to undertake the defense of financially poor criminal defendants does not violate the attorney's constitutional rights. They concluded in their opinion by noting, and I quote here, the duty of the trial court to appoint counsel under such circumstances is clear as it is clear under circumstances such as those noted by the record here. And the trial judge's power to do so, even in the absence of a statute, cannot be questioned. Attorneys are officers of the court and are bound to render service when required by such an appointment. And that is such a powerful last sentence that I want to read it to you one more time. Attorneys are officers of the court and are bound to render service when required by such an appointment. The idea here being that attorneys, sure, they may be in private practice. They may work for a law firm or, or be a solo practice attorney or work in a small law firm or whatever the case might be. But at the end of the day, attorneys are still officers of the court. They are still looked to as, as, a, as an important functioning piece of what our judicial system looks like and how a court should operate. And because of that, they are bound to offer their services as an attorney by such an appointment, by, by, by a court saying, help this indigent, this poor criminal defendant who can't afford his own attorney, help him out in his or her criminal defense case. And I think that is a powerful sentence, and it frankly saddens me that there was an attorney that even would challenge such a thing. As a previous private practice attorney myself, it was not uncommon for me to be seen by a judge when I was sitting in a courtroom waiting for my client's case to get called and to have a judge appoint me. It's called appointing from the uh, appointing from the bench. They literally are sitting there at their bench. They go, you know what? Criminal defendant Bill Smith, and I'm making that name up. Bill Smith is a generic name, right? Anybody could be a Bill Smith. I think you would do well uh, with a court-appointed attorney. So I see Mr. Snyder is sitting in the court. Mr. Snyder, I'm going to go ahead and appoint you to Mr. Smith's criminal offense case. You know, please help him. And more times than not, it was just a matter of me sitting down and explaining to the client what his criminal charge was, what it was that the prosecutor was offering him as a resolution to his case, and did he want to accept that. More times than not, yes, he did, but he just needed a, an attorney to take the legal ease and boil it down to layman speak, much like we do here on this podcast. So, again, I, I, I will simply say it, it saddens me that this fellow, this attorney back in 1972 would, would, would have rejected being appointed to a criminal defense attorney 
you know, when given an opportunity to help someone protect their constitutional rights. But I digress. It was for all of these reasons that I have just discussed that the Michigan Court of Appeals held it is not equal to slavery or involuntary servitude for an attorney to be ordered to represent a criminal defendant who cannot afford attorney. Okay, gang, we've got two more cases left to chat about, so stick with me. This case, and we've got then one more. Here, in this case, it's called Blair versus Checker Cab Company, and it's a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1996. We have this person who is kicked out of what I consider to be a, a very early form of Uber. I mean, it wasn't Uber, and it wasn't anything near what Uber is, but but here's what's going on. Tell me if there isn't a little, little bit of an Uber-ishness to it. There was this particular business, the, the Checker Cab Company, uh, this business had created or was put together where members of the business were licensed taxicab drivers in the city of Detroit. The purpose of the business was to use only the taxicab companies, which collectively made up this corporation. When a call came in for the need of a taxicab, then in round robin format, a taxicab company would be called and told where the person was to be picked up and dropped off. So, if a person called this conglomerate corporation needing a taxi ride, whichever specific taxi cab company was next in line to be assigned the call, that specific taxi cab company got the call for the fare and would be given that route. They then went, that company that just got the, the, the fare, they would be placed at the bottom of the list and the next taxi cab company would be called and then they would be assigned the next fare that came through, you know, and so on and so forth as how round robin tends to work. But this amalgamation of taxi companies making up the checker cab company was very sophisticated and they had crafted up their own constitution and bylaws by which all members of this corporation were required to follow. Now, generally speaking, the, the Constitution and the bylaws that were drafted, it can be boiled down uh, to a description which essentially said, hey, play nice with each other. But to be specific, and the reason why Ms. Blair got booted out of this checker cab club was because she violated one of the bylaws, which was the prohibition on soliciting other members' drivers to come work for her. So essentially, said another way, you can't steal each other's uh, drivers, right? You, you, you have your own drivers, you hire your own drivers, you don't try to steal from, from fellow companies that are a part of this conglomeration. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that an employee, you know, him or herself, couldn't choose to leave company A to go join company B. But what it really means is it's just that the business owner of company B wasn't allowed to solicit or <laughs> steal company A's employee. But she did solicit another company's employee, got busted, and was issued a fine by the conglomerate company. She refused to pay. So according to both the constitution of the corporation and according to its bylaws, Ms. Blair got booted. And she sued. Now, amongst all the things that she threw at the wall to see what would stick, what do you think she included? If you said violation of her constitutional rights under Article 1, Section 9 of the Michigan Constitution, ding, 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 you got it. Ms. Blair tried to argue 
that the corporation's bylaws creates an unconstitutional system of involuntary servitude because the drivers were limited in their ability to take new work. Effectively, the drivers couldn't go to work for one of the other companies within the checker cab company, which had been created, which I think is an interesting argument for her to make as a business owner making on behalf of drivers, you know, within this overall conglomerate, but it is what it is, right? Fortunately, big negatory good buddy was effectively what the Court of Appeals responded to Ms. Blair with. They first looked at the language as written in Article 1, Section 9, against that of our United States Constitution's 13th Amendment. The Court of Appeals concluded that because the language between the two documents was almost identical, they would interpret our Michigan constitutional provision in the same light as the federal constitution's amendment. And at the federal level regarding the 13th Amendment, involuntary servitude has been defined to mean coerced service of one person for another through the use or threatened use of law, of physical force, or some other method that causes the laborer to believe that the laborer has no alternative to providing the service. More importantly, where the laborer has some alternative to performing the service, even if distasteful or less attractive than the service, there is no involuntary servitude. So let me be clear what this means. We're going to consider it to be involuntary servitude if a person is threatened by force, threatened with a lawsuit, or any other method where a person must do work they do not wish to do. But if there are alternatives in doing the work, even if the work is lesser than what's being asked of them, there is no involuntary servitude. So, here in our case, because both the drivers and the owners could choose to work outside the checker cab company, or even work in an entirely different profession, because they have other options for making a living, Ms. Blair fails in her argument that this company's bylaws led to any type of involuntary servitude. And finally, our last case of Calhoun County Treasurer versus Swafford, which is a Court of Appeals case from 2010, we again address the concept of other alternatives which eliminates an involuntary servitude claim. Now, real quick, I do want to disclose that this case is an unpublished Court of Appeals case, which means that it holds little precedential value with other courts. But I still think it's on point for our conversation, and seeing as how I only had five cases total which address this Article 1, Section 9 provision, well, I've included it for additional material and insight. The fact pattern on this case was unduly long, so I'm going to give you the quick and dirty. Mr. and Mrs. Swafford owned a couple pieces of undeveloped land in the city of Springfield, county of Calhoun. The road which ran in front of their property was called 12th Street, and 12th Street is owned by the city. But here's the rub. 12th Street on a plat of land, which is nothing more than like a, a, a document, a, 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 big, a big sheet of paper where the city kind of divvies up how the land is going to look. When it was mapped out, 12th Street was allocated to be 
50 feet wide, five zero, 50 feet wide. That's how, that's how wide 12th street is. But for whatever purpose and whatever reason, when 12th street actually got paved, the city only made the paved portion 40 feet wide, four zero, 40 feet wide. And they left a 10 foot strip of land running, uh, you know, alongside 12th street as completely unpaved. And as you all can imagine for the purposes of our, of our case and, and, and why we had a fight, those 12 feet of unpaved land or that, that, that 12 feet wide strip of land, well, it abutted against the edge of the Swafford's property. So for the mind's eye of the listener, the Swafford's land abutted 12th Street. By all rights, you could have one foot on the Swafford's property and you could have your other foot on 12th Street. However, that foot standing on 12th Street wasn't paved. As a matter of fact, 10 feet of unpaved land ran between the edge of the Swafford's property and the paved road of 12th Street that the cars would be traveling down. As such, that 12-foot wide strip of land needed to be mowed so as to prevent the growth of weeds and vines and crabgrass and all the other things, right? But here's the deal. The city mowed that strip of land in front of the Swafford's property and then issued a mowing bill to the Swafford's for not mowing it themselves. The Swafford's refused to pay the mowing bill because they said that 10 feet of land wasn't theirs and they shouldn't be responsible for it. And what do you think was one of the Swafford's arguments against being required to mow the city land? You got it, involuntary servitude. They believed that being required to mow the unpaved portion of the road, which is owned by the city, results in involuntary servitude. Their failed rationale was essentially, you're making me do something I don't want to do, and you're making me do it for free. This is your road, you mow the land. No dice, said the Court of Appeal judges. First, they acknowledge that whether people realize it or not, you technically own the land from the edge of your property to the halfway mark, or also known as the center line, of a road. But the reason why you have no rights to block the road or plow the road in the winter is because the city has an easement across your property, specifically that portion of the road. So, First off, the Court of Appeals says the Swaffords lose based on ownership of the property to the halfway point, middle of the road. Maybe here's another situation that you could better relate. As a kid growing up, I lived in the city limits of Niles, Michigan. I lived in a typical middle-class neighborhood and specifically within a cul-de-sac. Our neighborhood had paved sidewalks which ran the length of the cul-de-sac, including going into and coming out of the circle. There's a strip of land between the road and the sidewalk, traditionally called a boulevard. It was an area where we'd put our trash cans on Thursday for garbage day. It was where we raked the fallen leaves for the vacuum trucks to suck up the autumn leaves, etc., etc. As a kid who had to mow my own lawn for my allowance... It infuriated me when I learned that the area between the curb of the road and the sidewalk, along with that sidewalk land, was all right-of-way for the city of Niles. That land was essentially owned by the city because they had an easement over the sidewalk and boulevard. 
Yes, I was the one who, in the summers, had to mow the boulevard and in the winter had to shovel the sidewalk. Now you can see where I get my uh, libertarian streak from, yes? The same holds true for the Swaffords. That 10 feet of unpaved land was, my words, not the Court of Appeals, a boulevard, which the Swaffords had to mow. And why is it not involuntary servitude to make the Swaffords or a young Niles Viking student maintain that boulevard? Because there are other alternatives than mowing it ourselves. The Court of Appeals ruled that the Swaffords themselves didn't have to mow it. They could let the city mow it, like they did, and then pay the mowing bill, like they were charged. The city of Springfield didn't put a gun to the heads of the Swaffords and make them mow the 10-foot strip of land. Involuntary servitude is where you are forced to do the labor with no alternatives. But that wasn't the situation here. The Swaffords had alternatives. For that reason, it was not deemed to be involuntary servitude to mow the 10-foot strip of land between their property and the paved road, even though the 10 feet of land was technically owned by the city. This is because the Swaffords had other alternatives as to whom actually had to go out and mow the city land. They could have done it themselves, they could let the city do it, or they could hire a neighbor kid to do the work. But because they themselves weren't literally forced and required to mow the land, it does not constitute involuntary servitude. And that's going to do it for episode number 22 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. You can reach out to me. I am on Twitter at Tony Snyder. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening. <laughs>